Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. In this episode, I will be speaking with Christian Philip Peterson, who teaches history at Ferris State University. He, along with William M. Koblach and Michael Lothenthal, are co-editors of the Rutledge History of World Peace since 1750. This collection of essays examines the varied and multifaceted scholarship surrounding the topic of peace and engages in fruitful dialogue about the global history of peace in 1750. Interdisciplinary in nature, the book includes contributions from authors working in its field as diverse as history, philosophy, literature, art, sociology, and peace studies. The book crosses the divide between historical inquiry and peace studies, scholarship with traditional aspects of peace promotion, sitting alongside expansive analysis of peace through other lenses, including specific regional investigations, of the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and other parts of the world. Thematically divided into six parts, the book offers a broad overview of peace issues such as peace building, state building, and conflict resolution in individual countries or regions and indicates the unique challenges of achieving peace from a range of perspectives. Global in scope and supported by regional and temporal case studies, the volume is an essential resource for educators, activists, and policymakers involved in promoting peace and curbing violence, as well as students and scholars of peace studies, history, and their related fields. Here is my conversation with Christian Peterson. Christian, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, let's get right to the first question. What in the world is Peace Studies, and why did you and the other editors decide to put this volume together? Well, it's a long, convoluted story, but essentially it started, I was asked by a colleague of mine if I would be interested in doing a Rutledge study of race relations in the United States, and I did not feel qualified to do that, but I said, I can do peace and human rights, and I don't think there's enough on peace. So I talked to the people at Rutledge, and they were all on board with the idea of writing uh, or having an anthology created about uh, the issue of peace, peace history. Now, the crux of the matter is, what does the term peace history mean? Because there's a divide in the field between historians who write about peace, usually descriptive narrative history about peace activism or how to end wars, um, which I can talk about more later in the interview versus in the field of peace, uh, peace studies or peace and conflict studies, you have social scientists who are searching for formulas, usually data-driven accounts that are trying to figure out how to make the world a better place based on the use of case studies. Now, one of the editors of this book, who's not with us for this interview, the social scientist on our, on our uh, part of their ed- editorial team is Michael Lodenthal. So he could speak much better about uh, the, the field of peace studies and peace conflict studies. But from what I read and the, the submissions that we get, they're basically people are trying to find formulas to make the world a better place across the board. 
So what you have is what does it mean to actually be in the field of peace history? And what we decided to do was get a conversation to design a volume that not only looked at the global issue or the global history of peace, excuse me, excuse me, since 1750, but bridge the gap between the historians who write about peace and social scientists who are in the field of peace and conflict studies to get an interdisciplinary dialogue that gave us a better sense of uh, what's wrong with the world and how we can fix it. Well, you know, the two of us are historians. Yeah. So that means that probably this this conversation is going to be a little skewed towards the history part of this, but the title of the volume is World Peace in 1750. Now, this seems counterintuitive because most of the understanding of history since 1750 has been a, a, a studies of increased revolutions, revolts, conflict, you know, the product of modernity uh, that has, you know, uh, basically uh, upset, you know, traditional societies and traditional ways of having communities. So it creates, you know, revolts and all that kind of thing. So, so how it's interesting. What I still don't understand what the, actually the topic area is because it seems like every, everything that you write historically is always trying to, in some way, trying to figure out what caused the conflict or the revolution or whatever, uh, and, you know, what the, what the issues are. And I don't understand, and we haven't seen very much peace. So what is peace anyway? Well, can peace, you define it? Well, different ways of thinking about it. Peace, I mean, you can simply call it the absence of war, but how the, the fields generally, and this is for historians who write about peace and in the field of peace and uh, conflict studies, is to make distinctions between negative peace and positive peace. Now, negative negative peace in the most general sense, and I'm I'm trying to make this as you know open to every listener as possible. Negative uh, peace is basically the absence of war. It means that there's not physical and violence being inflicted on populations or people are not experiencing violence. It's it's mainly the absence of war. What a lot of historians and people, social scientists, writing about peace in general have this concept called positive peace. That means something more than just the absence of conflict. It's finding ways to get rid of things like the structural violence in society, which can incorporate anything from like food insecurity to racism to gang violence, um, whatever that is. It's finding something beyond negative peace where you structure societies in ways that allow people to live in harmony with their environments, to basically live full flourishing lives uh, that just don't mean absence of, of conflict. And people have all sorts of debates about what that actually entails. And it gets into uh, like the, the way our, our, our study are, is structured is that the introduction deals with how people have framed and understood the evolution of positive peace. And getting back to what you said at the beginning, you're right that a lot of stuff has been written about war. I mean, we try to get into the business of giving the other side of it. I mean, Writing about war cells, war cells in movies, war cells in novels. But the question, especially when you get into uh, the modern world or the advent of modernity, is some people, whether you trace it back to Immanuel Kant's A Perpetual Peace or you've got various thinkers in other non-Western countries uh, thinking about it, is how to structure society to make war less of a reality and find ways of allowing human beings to not only end the violence against each other, but allow them to live lives that are meaningful and somehow are more than just kind of scraping by. So that's what we're trying to do in this volume is re is give people another way of understanding the debates in history that just don't center around warfare. So that the, whether, you know, people, whether people uh, like that, or it's, it's, I have to admit it's a tough sell at times, but I think it's worthwhile if we want to make this planet a better place to seriously deal with the issues of peace and war and how we can, fight those forces. Well, it seems to me like uh, this uh, peace studies could be renamed to something that more like what we're talking about here is holistic human flourishing, uh, studying human flourishing and, and the uh, elements of that. That's what some people... Of, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. That's what some people would say. Our, some of the authors in our volume uh, address those issues of how you would get to Linda Groff, for example, the essay that concludes our uh, volume gets into this business of how to structure societies, thinking 
Uh, she's got these various charts and ways of understanding um, not only history, but uh, the way people live that can answer these questions that very much deal with what you just said, the term holistic living. So if, if historians looking back on, on the past, we're going to be looking a person who a historian who's emphasizing peace would have to then look to the past and see if we can find examples of when this has occurred. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about the you know the Puritans very early on when they had their this their city on the hill, mm-hmm. and how they envisioned what they were living out and their vision for their society at the very you know which didn't last very long but it, did, no, it was there no. for for a little while. <laughs> What do yeah. you study? What is your object of studying the past to, to put an emphasis on this holistic human flourishing? You would have to find examples in the past of when this has occurred. You'd have to find examples of it. Some of these, um, some of these, the essays in our in our volume deal with that. But what also is like you you raise a good point because whatever, especially the Puritans, their example of shining city on the hill. Some most people would say it didn't really work because it was an unattainable ideal, and they had trouble with Native Americans right from the beginning, excluding them in terms of civilization and citizenship. That results in things like King Philip's War um, and whatnot. But what 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 you can look at it from a number of different angles. Like uh, one of the things that our introduction does is get into these debates about what peace means in practice. I mean, beyond the definitions of negative and positive peace. What historians who write about peace do is try to find those moments when human beings lived in peace, but also talk about how you can change international relations, like world transformations, how you organize international society to best promote peace. And there's all sorts of debates about that. You get into social movements. How have people understood war, challenged war, tried to produce societies that were less likely to engage in war? That's when you get like the people in the late 1800s, private citizens, you know, uh, working for um, either socialist solutions to the cause of war, arbitration arrangements, uh, social activism, um, you know, the peace advocates that tried to prevent World War I, for example. So you get into things like that. And then you get into um, uh, what you would call uh, conflict management. Once you have wars that are already going, how do you basically organized ways, for example, whether it's the Palestinians and the Israelis, once you have conflicts, how do you end them? And how do you structure societies after to make sure they don't happen again? So you have all these issues where at times it looks like it's very hard because most of human history is it's a lot of warfare. It's a lot of conflict. It's a lot of hatred. You're trying to find ways to um, kind of turn the tide back and, uh, and find arrangements to deal with uh, all the human problems that we've had. So you've got to look to my mind when you look at the issue of peace, it's, you know, you can find examples of when human beings living in, in, in peaceful solution or peaceful times, but it also is the story of how people have challenged war, try to restructure society to prevent wars from being as frequent peacekeeping missions. And I can say more about it. If you're interesting, there's a big uh, controversy right now in the field of peace and conflict studies and peace history in general. Uh, kind of a, blo- a pushback against kind of democratic peace theory or what uh, a lot of scholars call the quote-unquote Western liberal or neoliberal peace theory. Right, yes, uh-huh. So, yeah. Because I'm thinking about, when I'm thinking back to the Puritans again, within their community, they believed that they had established a viable society. Now, we look at them now and we think, well, look, you didn't, you excluded the Indians, you, you were not living at peace with them. But within their society, it's very subjective, right? Who decides what is peace and what does peace look like? And it seems like it's a kind of a community by community basis about how we arrive at that. And uh, so it's really, I think it's really complicated to try to, you know, define that. And, And I think what you just pointed out, yes, can we, can someone from the outside come into a community and impose upon them some sort of system or some sort of ethos that we think is more, uh, you know, will produce more human flourishing for all people when their tradition may, their tradition, whatever it may be, may uh, be resistant to that. Absolutely. It's, it's a fundamental issue that we deal with in this book. Like I would, I mean, 
I'm going to mention some authors here, but it's in no particular order. I mean, we have a lot of good articles in, in the book, but Michael Carpenter's book, or Michael Carpenter's book, Michael Carpenter's essay about uh, peace power from below and the Palestinian-Israeli disputes is a great example of this, because he really faults a lot of the elite Palestinian Authority and others for really screwing up arrangements um, that people on the grassroots level have for basically dealing with their societies in terms of peaceful relations, in terms of improving the Palestinian communities and dealing with, uh, you know, the, the current political situation, that a lot of times you have international institutions, you have peace activists who come in, whether they're international actors uh, through private groups or through um, international institutions that come in with blueprints that they're basically going to implement without consulting the local knowledge, local taking local uh, conditions into account. Like this cookie cutter approach to peace based on if you have elections, if you have markets, if you just have democracy, that you get this cookie cutter blueprint, go into a community and say, this is how peace is going to be. That is, there's been a lot of pushback against that because a lot of people are saying not only it doesn't work, but it actually, in many cases, is actually harmful to societies. So a lot of what we did when I when I structured the introduction along with my co-editors, one of the questions or one of the things that we made that can bridge the gap between social scientists writing about peace and historians is how historians close attention to the different local contexts, the different history of peoples can be central to actually making the blueprints that social scientists come up with work better if you have a better sense of the local context, local knowledge, what worked and hasn't worked in the past, you're at a much better chance to promote peace than just coming in and say, this worked in Tanzania, so maybe it will work here without knowing the history and background of the people. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking of an example in the United States between the old, the old South, the South before civil rights, okay, uh, Jim Crow South. Uh, you know, when uh, people came into the South to uh, promote civil rights, a lot of the white Southerners said we were fine until the Yankees came in and stirred up, you know, the black population. Uh, everything was fine. We all got along. We were, quote, in peace. You know, now you stirred it all up. So it's kind of interesting because it's very subjective about who whose peace, what peace, whose peace, how you define it. And uh I, I just I don't know how you how you even find a situation where what ap- appears like peace because there's no visible act of violence or conflict maybe but there's still a lot of unrest a lot of unhappiness a lot of people not liking the status quo. What you've just described here is a good example of the difference between negative and positive peace. I mean, you can have a population that you know, there's no violence, like there's no armed uprisings, but people are suffering from everyday systemic violence. Like if they, I mean, you know, the, I don't want to go into a whole history of race relations in the, in the U.S. South, but the fact that you have, um, you know, the problem of lynching for a long time, you have the Jim Crow system by itself is an argument every day that you are not equal to somebody, um, the school systems, um, the oppression that people felt on an everyday basis, that would be an example of how people would say the society that is has that type of arrangement by definition isn't in peace and it's not going to be in peace until you basically get rid of the systemic violence or basically the arrangements that degrade people by definition. And that's when you get into the issue of why so many people think that um, it's very misleading just to, to assume that peace is the absence of warfare. It encompasses a whole different number of factors that you have to say a society is in peace. So it makes so it makes it really difficult to to study the past, I think impossible and to find an example of this of a positive a positive peace. I don't know, I don't know where you would find that. I think you would end up talking about the underlying conflicts that are there that maybe they're not, you know, the uh the there may be negative peace, but there's not positive peace. And you and, and so again, you're you're having to focus in on the conflict and the problem. And I there's something about history that historians tend to write about some sort of conflict. It may not be violent conflict, but some kind of ideological conflict, you know, religious conflict, uh, ideas, political, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if there's not a conflict, 
I don't know where you would find a society that doesn't have that, doesn't have a conflict. We all, every society has some sort of conflict, even if they don't have outright war. So I don't know how historians would write it about that unless they're looking for attempts. That's Uh, that's how I would frame it. Like to me, I mean, this is just my view. And I, you know, uh, I'm coming from a historian of perspective. To me, it's like writing about the ideals versus reality. Now, any society, as far as I know, is going to have problems in terms of resource allocation, race issues, class issues of some sort, political issues. Even a country like uh, the social democratic paradise of Sweden, if you follow Swedish politics, at all, they have their own issues, whether it's immigrants or whether it's arguments over market reforms, whether they're moving away from the social democratic model. There's, there's going to be problems in any society, but you still study and you can still make distinctions. The difference between a country like Sweden and the United States or Canada or wherever, there's still a scale where you can make um, distinctions based on the actual conditions on the ground. Like there's definitely an ideal. I don't know if any society for maybe in Star Trek, like I always think when I think of like a, a utopian society, I imagine in Star Trek where everything seems to get made on time. No, because maybe machines will eventually take this over in some type of flipped Marxist world of the future where machines create everything and it's just redistributed naturally. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I doubt that will ever happen, but who knows? I won't be around for it, but you can still make distinctions based on society. So you can study things and look at this society uh, in terms of the paradigms of understanding structural violence, the history or um, positive versus negative peace. You can still make, I think, useful distinctions studying uh, various societies. And in my idea, it's just like, go ahead, go ahead. So I think you can, basically what you're talking about is doing some comparative histories, Mm -hmm. uh, how diff- two different societies or three different societies have have dealt with maximizing human flourishing and 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 thinking about okay is this society closer to maximizing you know do yeah. they have a a path forward to maximizing human flourishing versus this other society who won't even acknowledge that there is any problem yeah and I'm <laughs> I'm going to muddy the waters further because people define happiness differently I mean. You don't need, I mean, I mean, you see, you got, you've got people, you've got Western with the Bill Gates Foundation or whoever come in and basically, or the United Nations, it doesn't matter, have their own versions of how you should be happy. It's, you know, being consumer oriented capitalist society with elections, some people, it doesn't, it doesn't build. That's why I think the local context and knowledge, I think is so important. And it's the simple, it's these typical debates you have about the modernity itself being defined as a Western kind of construct of how to, how to to organize the world and some people not on board with that. And then you get into all these obscure intellectual, de- maybe not obscure is the right word, but you get into these intellectual debates about what modernity means and concepts of multiple modernity. Right, because This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Because this is kind of what I, this is kind of what I, I, I found in the book was that, uh, that a lot of the conflict uh, is the result of mo- what I call the result of modernity the nation state, migration, breakdown of traditional societies, the rise of the individual, liberalism, capitalism, globalization. I mean, it seems like these, so it's like studying modernity and how do you put that genie back in the bottle? (laughs) Because I think the only way, you know, you're going to get uh, human flourishing is returning back to, or not returning, but reconstructing some sort of communal model of how to organize society at the community level, because people can't, people don't live globally. People live very locally. Okay. We have, I know we have internet and we have all that. So we think we're global citizens, but actually we're living, you know, in a little piece of piece of real estate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, so, I agree. I agree with your insights. It's, it's a challenge and people have been grappling with these issues. Like, the issue of, 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 of a blanket international identity to promote world peace, I, I don't think that's going to work because I, you, you hit the nail. No, I head. don't either. Most people look, um, 
are focused on their, 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 most people, I, I mean, I just gave a talk on this in my university about, I was on a panel talking about the rise of tribalism in the modern world. Um, so I'm aware of some of these issues, but people start with their families, their communities, especially times of economic dislocation. They tend to rally around their self-professed tribe. Nationalism is an offshoot of this, like the nation state, people coming back to this community, whether it's in Europe with the backlash against the European Union or people like Orban in Hungary to what's going on in the United States. I think there is some truth in that. Now, what some people have grappled with, I wish we had an essay in um, our volume about uh, Giuseppe Manzini in Italy during the 1800s. I think he dealt with a lot of these issues of how to responsibly reconcile nationalism and internationalism, kind of the uh, enlightened nationalists, like a bunch of democratic nationalist countries that would cooperate together on their own terms internationally, where people would have healthy democratic nationalism instead of having it be, you know, toxic patriotism or nationalism or warmongering or, or, or well, some the, of these, yeah, some of these the, issues. Uh, it seems to me like a lot of this has to do with the psyche of the, you know, the human psyche. It's very difficult for us to love humanity in the abstract, you know, universal yeah. humanity. It's we, we tend to love particular people. We tend to love people within a, you know, a circle of influence around us. Uh, and we seek to live in harmony with those people. It's very hard for for human beings to trans, try to transcend that very local particularity. So we can call it tribalism, but I think, which I think is you know a way of just saying you know it's wrong. Instead of saying, okay, wait a minute, this is maybe something that about human beings that we need to acknowledge, and how do we make that be? you know, good for everybody. <laughs> well, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you're saying. It's the perpetual struggle. I mean, I mean, you can look at the, the new book by uh, Fukuyama about identity, I think is going to be nailed on both sides, left and right. The right are going to hate it because, you know, it's, it's an apology for identity politics and the left are going to think it's a, not, um, what's what I'm looking for? It doesn't celebrate identity politics enough. This is just my take. This could be wrong. But it seems to me that he's trying to figure out why human beings seem to be one of the issues he deals with in the book is human beings have this innate drive for recognition that they want to be basically seen well in the eyes of others and so forth. And he develops all this stuff, but there is something innate in humanity where we want to be considered, um, you know, as good as anybody else. We are, we're driven more by recognition um, than by, say, bland economic forces because people are wondering, why people seem to vote for politicians who don't who enact policies that are not in their economic interest. Like I just give you one example, a quick one. I know somebody who um, literally had a had an operation saving their life because of uh, the the Affordable Health Care Act, and they voted for politicians who um, are openly trying to get rid of it. And you try to square that, and you you ask him about this, and he he basically thinks that. The politicians you vote for are more important because they recognize my identity. They, they, they seem to have something that calls to him that economics isn't as important to him or healthcare isn't as important to him to the overall message of the, of the people speaking about America first or taking back the country. These issues seem to resonate more with him than abstract economic issues. Okay, Harrison. Christian, one of the things that happens in your, in your um, book here is the idea of that we can teach peace uh, education, ed, educate people towards peace. And I was wondering if, if we can really look at it that way, because isn't peace really the, the result of pre-existing conditions on the ground? In other words, people have to have a fair allocation of resources, bodily security, a trusted authorities and traditions that undergird the person before you can even have peace, instead of thinking that you can just uh, teach peace. Now you could teach conflict resolution, uh, but I don't know if you can teach peace. It's it's debatable, and I the person that would be much better positioned to answer this question would be Mike Lodenthal, our uh, our editor from uh, who's a social scientist guy. But in my understanding of it, I think you can teach peace in ways that just address the issues, give people the main understanding. So you're going to have a class. I think you use like peace study readers to address all these major issues: conflict resolution positive versus negative peace, perhaps get into nationalism versus universal values. I think you can raise the issues and begin people to think about things like what patriotism means in practice. Like you can, 
the patriotism can take many forms. Could it be self-critical addressing problems or is it jingoism, warmongering, nationalism? I mean, if you're going to use peace as, as, as a piece to basically turn people into, uh, I mean, I don't know, like basically any type of violence is bad and war is never good. I, I, I don't think you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. But I, I th- the way I conceive of it as a historian is to give people different okay. views of complex events. So let's, let's talk again. How, do you, how does race and gender theory interact with this field? It's an important part because historians who write about peace and social scientists in the peace and con- field of peace and conflict studies like to, uh, especially in terms of peace and conflict studies, consider themselves interdisciplinary. So to write about the systemic violence of a lot of different societies, you need to be able to go into the field of race studies and gender studies or women's studies, however you, you want to put it, and grab theories and ideas from those fields to give people a better sense of what the problems in societies are. You want to be able to basically take theories from a lot of different disciplines and use them in ways that elucidate what is wrong within society. So You have examples of essays in our book written by various authors who have things like they will use statistics and talk about drawing a number of different theories to show why UN peacekeeping missions, the effectiveness has been compromised because women haven't been, despite the pledges of countries, women have been underrepresented in United Nations peace missions, or why women are being underutilized um, on various uh, peace missions uh, across the globe. So what, why I would say they are important is, is because at the end of the day, race has always been a factor in how human beings have related to each other, and it usually it becomes an important topic in, in how peace is framed, especially not only wars between countries, but the kind of the issues of uh, systemic violence that's within societies, a lot of times it deals with understanding basic racial theory. So I think they're valuable tools in the toolkit of how to better address and explain peace issues throughout human history. The, the other issue is religion, uh, because in religion, you know, you've got uh, like peace movements where there's a lot of religious people involved. There's also a lot of secular people involved. And there's been the hard secularist position that part of the problem with the world and the conflict is religion. And yep. and other people would say, no, if you're going to solve the problem of conflict, you have to deal with religion. and You have to bring religious people into it because you're never going to solve it if you just decide that you're just going to exclude them because you think they're the problem. So how do, how do uh, uh, historians and social scientists who work on peace studies deal with the issue of religion in peace studies? It's a very good question, and it's a loaded one, and I like to take it in a, a couple different ways. One, well, a lot of the p- religious stuff in our book deals with peace activism, especially from the late 1800s into the early 20th century. There were a lot of religious groups that kind of thought of themselves uh, whether it's you know very hardcore peace or pacifism like war is never good to people who define defensive war to the issue of conscientious objection that you need to know the religious background how people have challenged wars and tried to get governments to change their behavior you've got to have a, a grasp on the religious angle and getting into the secular issue there are going to be some headbutting on this issues but I think to be realistic people who are like very anti-religion and very secular oriented are going to have to wrap their heads around that peace can be a way to help, or excuse me, religion can be an issue that can be harnessed to promote peace. It just has to be done effectively. There was one author whose name is escaping me, who we didn't get, I tried everything but throw the kitchen sink at him to get him in this book, who I did a podcast interview for New Book Network's World Affairs, who did a very good job of describing how religious authorities in the former Yugoslavia have been made an important part of the peace process of trying to settle the former disputes that instead of like just sidelining them because they're religious, whether it's Muslim uh, or Catholic or Orthodox, that they've been brought into the process and that has helped at least on some level deal with some of the peace disputes. I think we have to wrap our heads around the idea that secularism is important, but most of the people on the planet uh, believe in religion. They believe in God. You can't just expect that these forces will be taken away. Depending on time, place, and context, religion can play an important role in the peace process. Does it cause a lot of death and destruction? Of course. The last time I looked, so did a lot of secular ideologies in the 20th century. They caused their fair share of, uh, of damage as well. And some people would even be nitpicky, I guess, or maybe that's not even the right word, but would talk about a lot of peace activism has failed in the world, that liberal peace 
paradigm of creating a secular, separating church and state uh, society, free market capitalism, liberal democracy has not really done a particularly good job of promoting peace across the planet, that it might have more success if it incorporates religion, uh, does a better job of addressing the issue of religion. Okay. The thing that really got me going here was when I was reading about uh, the social science criticism of history, uh, historians that, that we're there, we're just engaged in a descriptive narrative and not offering any solutions. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it really got to me because I, I do think of history as moral inquiry and really it's the way society reflects on its past. We reflect on our experience in the past and try to get meaning out of it and figure out, you know, who are we from what's happened to us? So the critique that that history needs to be more scientific seems sort of, you know, kind of wrongheaded to me, um, which, of course, one of the things that you talk about in that introduction is about the whole argument of the rational actor and trying to, like, pin down through some sort of, you know, quantitative, qualitative sort of analysis of what are the elements to create, you know, peace with assuming that you have at rational actors, but I think that that is, that's kind of wrongheaded too, because we know people are not making decisions just based on a calculus of, you know, two plus two equals four. People have all kinds of motivations. Religion's one of them, family uh, alliances and loyalties and ideological persuasions and, you know, how they're feeling that day. <laughs> no, I, 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 so, I agree with you. Yeah. So I'm wondering how, how in this field of peace studies or, or the, uh, you can actually have history and the field of uh, social science uh, fields work together unless you have social scientists who are willing to kind of understand uh, a, have a broader humanistic understanding of how people operate. I don't see how this field can hold together is what I'm saying. Well, I'm sure there'd be a lot of people would like to, who are in the, I, I'm, I come from a historian's background. So you're going to, I'm sure there are going to be uh, other people who listen to this and you know want to like jump on and, and, and get into the debates. But it seems to me just by what I'm thinking, there's there, everything I read suggests that a lot of social scientists have thought about this critique and they basically think they're doing a good job of, um, of incorporating history. I know people that have worked for non-governmental groups say that we try to understand the culture of any society we go into. Now you have that critique out there. It seems to me that people are, the, the things I get by uh, the various like big names in the field of peace studies that I, I mentioned in the introduction of the book, they talk about this kind of this hybrid forms of peace. I think the, the field is moving in a direction, uh, uh, local context, local knowledge, various ways that are more historically animated because the definition if you take the idea that the people you say you're going into a peacekeeping operation that local knowledge should start first you should work for the people and work yourself out instead of coming in with we're going to have this liberal blueprint to produce peace and just impose it on them you have to be more historically minded by definition you got to know the background the history the customs you've got to figure out what's worked in the in the past i think by definition the field is moving in a more historical direction based on what, I, what I'm reading. Now, it gets into how you're going to frame it. Because the critique that I kept seeing over and over again and talking to people, and there's a big divide. Uh, I have numerous examples of this growing divide. Like people would read something like, um, we'll just give it, this is an example that I just off the top of my head, of the people, of the peace activists in the 1930s who tried to prevent World War II. Like what, what is, what, if you read a narrative description, um, some of these articles deal with the issue and it doesn't work. Like what, what's, what's, what's the value of that? Like what do you I mean? So what that people like put conferences in Nanking that oppose the Japanese war in China? Like, so what, like what, what's the importance of that? So then you've got to get into the, to the questions of what to do in the here and now. I kept hearing this argument and, and, and you're right. I don't think it's fair. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this is the correct argument. But the argument is like social scientists go out into the field, they collect statistics, they do background, they come up with blueprints to make this world better now, whereas historians basically write about uh, random subjects in the narrative form that are of limited value. And it gets into the whole John Lewis Gaddis book, uh, Landscape of History, how he frames the difference between social scientists and historians. Now, one guy said to me, and this is, this is he, he said he was simplifying by a thousand. 
But he said this to me was the difference between history and at least as he understood the field of peace studies was that historians draw on a lot of stuff to write. Um, he put it like this. They draw on a lot of stuff, a lot of specialized research. They use a lot to explain a little. Whereas social scientists use a little to explain a lot. That, that to him. Well, was the, it, it, I would I would difference. have to object to that. Well, you know, it depends on the history, who's writing the history, <laughs> what they're doing. I mean, but the thing about it is uh, when they one of the things with the criticisms that I saw there was also about the fact that we don't deploy theories. You know, we don't yeah. we don't create theories and we don't deploy theories. And I think that's simply wrong. I think most historians uh, have a theory of of running in the background. OK, mm-hmm. and they just don't foreground it. You know, they have a theory about what what was what caused a certain conflict. A th- you could say a theory of what's going to bring peaceful. Uh, you know, we borrow a lot of theories from the social mm-hmm. scientist. Absolutely. Uh, we just don't we just don't put it in the background. What we do is we put flesh on those theories. OK, so that yeah. we can, you know, we can actually see how this whether this really works. I mean, you don't really know if a theory really works unless you test it uh, in in history, I think. I think that that's what we do. We test our here theories in history in the past. Yeah, I don't I once again, I don't, I don't disagree. I'm just I'm just trying to lay out the arguments for both sides because we designed Yeah, I understand. We designed this book to try to bridge the gap because uh, the the hostility on many like I as I wrote in the introduction of the book, like there are people who basically Big wigs in the field of peace and conflict studies who basically say or basically openly brag about not reading history. I had a guy I won't I won't name his name who went to a conference, a peace history conference. I won't even give you more than that, not to give it away. But he basically gave a little panel presentation on the importance of studying history and peace, and he said he was borderline shorted, shouted down by the audience. Who is history historians to tell us what to do? Why? Peace. Why do we should we care about something that happened a hundred years ago when people are starving now? One one well, one graduate student got up and said, "Who are historians to tell us what to do until they decolonize their field?" Um, Ooh, wow, that stings. Yeah. yeah okay. Like that. Apparently, that person's never been to the uh, AHA conference recently, but uh, that's that's another issue. But my point of it is, I, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to the historians' arguments, but we did try to be. Um, in our introduction to lay out both sides in ways that um, we at least begin the process of bridging the gap in the dialogue. And the other thing too, you know, uh, history is a narrative, even if you just say it's just a narrative, but I think we can also, historians not only do moral inquiry, not only do we test out theories to see and put flesh on those theories, but the other thing that we also do is we evoke the imagination of what is possible. And I think that evoking of the imagination I think is and reflecting on who we are and how we got here is crucial. So it seems like we're more willing to use, you know, social science tools to do our work than what you're talking about. Some of the people in the on the other side are are not willing to consider the value of what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate because I've had people respond to me in this in uh, about this about the essays in this book in the introduction in all sorts of ways. Like, I've, people have either thought it was great, other people thought it was terrible. But I've had I, w- I wish if I had done this again, I would have had a chapter that was written by somebody who's had a, who's had experience actually working on peace missions instead of just being academic about it. Because I know some right. people who've worked for the Bill Gates Foundation who have done work in Haiti, who have done work in Senegal. Um, and they basically say that a lot of the academic stuff that they read by social scientists, they understand that they're going to have to bring a history component to it once they get on the ground. Like they're not just going to go in with what uh, what they read about why peacekeeping missions haven't worked in Haiti. They got to get to know the people. They got to get to know the history. That there's a difference between theory and practice once you get into the field. That I think we could have captured better with an essay on that subject in the in this book. Well, especially when you're talking about something like Haiti. Uh, they have a they have a a history in their stories, in their folk tales, in their songs, in their mm-hmm. art that is full of uh, of information. I think yeah. useful information for social scientists, and also that can inspire insp- can inspire people that can evoke an imaginative idea of what Haiti could be. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's like. 
if you just go in there and count how many kids are starving and how many hospitals there are, I think you're not really uh, understanding this, what the the solution is because a lot of the solution is already within patient culture. The solution is within the culture, which means you've got to understand the folk tales and the stories and the music and all that. Yeah, you, you raise good points. The quick, the trick, as I can see it, is to find ways to meld that all together. How, who's going to meld it all together in ways that actually um, help the Haitians in ways that they define as as acceptable? I mean, because like I said, you can't just go into a country and tell people how to live. Um, it's all, it's all. To me, it's to me, it's all there. To me, it's it's it's, it's potentially the, there's fruitful dialogue. And what what you're saying, I'm very sympathetic to because I'm like I said, I'm trained as a historian. Maybe we can find ways um, of getting along better. Well, this is what I, so what I'm going to ask you now is, is it, can social science and history coexist in peace studies without denigrating one another? Because it seems to me that their whole pro, the project are so, the projects are so different. And this particular volume has got so many different elements in it. We've got every kind of thing in there. You've got, yeah. You know, religion, education, ecology, arts. I mean, this, I mean, there's so much uh, in uh, it's so big, it's so broad. I'm not sure that you can even begin to bring these two wings of knowledge together. So, uh, what do you hope these essays will give the reader? Because it got me riled up. Well. <laughs> A couple things. I'm hoping it educates people about the evolution of peace since 1750. There are obviously a lot of gaps in, even with 35 essays, we couldn't cover every subject. There's some glaring things that should be in here. And if you've ever undertaken an anthology, you know the process. I mean, what people agree to do and what they actually end up doing is quite different. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. We had essays that were promised to us that never, that never uh, materialized on very important topics, 80 being one of them. Um, for example. But what I'm hoping people read, not only they're educated about peace issues, think more about the issue of peace, uh, digest the terms, but I'm also the interdisciplinary dialogue. I really think there has to be something resembling breaking the ice. Because right now I'm not very, very optimistic about the dialogue based on all the stuff that I'm hearing at conferences, amongst various editors. But I think it's an important discussion to have. Because if you just have people sitting there on either side of the camp hostile to each other, you're not going to really, I think people, and to use your phrase, we need to have some creative imagination where people read outside their discipline. Like, I don't think it would be kill historians to read more social science accounts of peace building missions, successes and failures. Just like I don't think it would kill uh, social scientists to read more history, even general histories of a country, even reading a novel, a Haitian novel, for example. I think could absolutely. Go, I think could go a long way. There's a good guy. There's a book. A, a guy I did a podcast with for uh, from the New Books Network. Um, I believe his name, and I'm going to be mad at myself if I get his name wrong. John Bow, who wrote a book called Re- Real Politique, that I did a podcast for, said it best. I think in his conclusion, where he said, "Diplomacy. People, instead of thinking about realpolitik and theory, people could do a lot better in their diplomacy if they read more literature about a country instead of just thinking about theories." Um, so I think he's on to Absolutely. something. I think he's on to something there. Um, and I think it goes, so it goes both ways, but, but to me, we have stuff we can potentially learn from each other. I just, right now people are tone deaf. We need a leap of imagination to begin that process, uh, going. That's what I'd like to take from this book, at least, at least as a start and historians will be sympathetic to their approach. Social scientists will come back, but maybe there's, there's something we can, uh, we can benefit from. Well, it seems to me you need a follow-up uh, book uh, between two authors, uh, a historian and a <laughs> social scientist, having a, a, a real conversation in a book about their different approaches to this field and where the commonality, possible commonalities and where they can collaborate. And uh, I think that would be a useful book, really yeah, I, useful. No, I do too. Um, it's one of these things where I bandied about a bunch of ideas. I'm trying to finish some books and projects of my own. I need 36 hours in a day, is, is what, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. It, but it is, it's actually funny you mentioned that because um, a friend of mine has actually suggested something similar, and we're just kind of in the very, very preliminary uh, process of discussing how to actually do that. 
And, and, yeah, and, and, also, and also this this uh, this topic this uh, conflict between social science and history it doesn't just apply to this particular field that your book is on but no. I think it's it's a, it kind of runs throughout you know the 20th century oh absolutely uh, and we're still dealing with it and uh, <laughs> you know how these uh, how we're going to look at the world and and how we think uh, each field can contribute so. How, how do you hope this book will be used? I hope it's used in a couple ways. I hope it's used, um, it becomes like a mainstay of, obviously it's a very academic book. It's, it's priced, it's not going to, the general reader's not going to pick it up. But what I, I mean, a lot of the times, what I'm hoping it's used for is for scholars to read it and take it seriously. And then uh, use it not only as a reference, but they use it in um, for selected essays in graduate and undergraduate classes but that they use it to inform their work, to find a way to say, this is, this is an interesting approach. I'm going to, next time I write something about peace, I'm going to try to look for the insights of different scholars and have that inform my work. But like, a, lot, a lot of what I envision this book as is, um, is one of the standard scholarly references that people writing about peace history in either the social sciences or in history, historians who write about peace, it's a work that they will consult on various topics, using classes when they when they when they need uh, more information, because one of the things that I think it does well is we have authors from a bunch of different countries. I mean, not just we have Americans, Canadians, uh, people from uh, Norway, um, Egypt. I mean, we have a lot of a lot of different uh, places. So to not only uh, use it as a reference to trace the evolution of, of global peace history, to become a useful reference and something that people can use in their classes and ultimately uh, increase the dialogue among historians and social scientists in ways that produce better work over time. That's, that's how I envision it. And obviously, this book is not skimpy. It's got like 34 chapters plus an introduction. So yeah. it's, there's a lot there. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not something you're just going to sit down and read in a weekend. What's interesting about this is I worried about the length, but Rutledge was very clear they wanted a book at least this long. <laughs> I mean... We, so we actually, I'm, I'm, I'm saying we, we weren't, we were about where they wanted with the word count when we, when we started off on this project. It seems to me, we, at times I was worried that it was way too many essays, but they seemed to want at least, I think it turned out they wanted 30 to 35 essays when it was all said and done. Well, uh, thank you, Christian, for this uh, insight into this book. I appreciate your time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>